Hi, I'm Mickey Lowe. Hi, I'm Bishop Todd. And welcome, welcome to, to the, the C4SO, C4SO podcast. podcast. Well, Bishop Todd, it's great to be back with you today. And I got the honor of being introduced to your other co-host, Vanessa Sadler. I know. I was kind of surrounded today by my two, <laughs> my two favorite co-hosts. I was, I was outnumbered, yeah. but it was fun. Yes, yes. It's the... Um, the assembling of the co-hosts. So yes. we decided um, before we started the interview that eventually Vanessa and I are going to flip the script on Bishop Todd. So stay oh tuned boy. for that. Here we go. <laughs> well, it was great to have Vanessa on today. Uh, her and I have gotten to know each other through her work in the Center for Formation, Justice, and Peace. She's written articles and helped create our Nourish Retreats. And she's, as you said, my co-host on the podcast. But today we had her on uh, as an expert in trauma care. Yes, she does such a great job of unpacking what trauma is, what trauma-informed care is, and how we as a church can be places of healing for those who have trauma in their background. So it's super helpful. She is just a wealth of knowledge and just really practical recommendations for those of us who are in pastoral care or who disciple people or in just really close contact with members of a congregation. And so just what wisdom looks like for us and how we care well for people who have trauma in their background. Yeah. You know, as Bishop and I know for you and your husband, Travis, as church planners there in Tampa, that issues of trauma and spiritual abuse are on the forefront of our mm -hmm. lives um, yep. day in and day out these days. So we're very pleased now to introduce you to Vanessa and to hear her thoughts on being trauma-informed clergy. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us today on the C4SO podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. Yes, we have been really looking forward to this conversation. But before we get into some of the nitty gritty of our episode today, we just have to know, what is your favorite food? Another part of this question is, what do you love now that you used to hate? Because we all grew up hating things that our mom made. And then eventually over time, we start to like them. I don't know. I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. So my favorite kind of food is Tex-Mex. Ooh, yes. Yeah. genre of food that I think I could eat pretty much any day of the week and I'd be happy. Just give me like a plate with chips and queso mm. and guac and salsa and I am I am good to go. Uh, so there yes, so there good. wasn't there wasn't a lot of food that my mom made me eat growing up. She wasn't a cook and she still isn't. Mm. Um, oh, so my okay. palate my palate yes. isn't I feel like as sophisticated as maybe some other people's <laughs> because I wasn't exposed to a lot of food. Like I eat foods now that weren't in my house growing up. I eat broccoli and cantaloupe and asparagus and, mm. and things like that that weren't around. Um, so I definitely eat a wider range of foods compared to when I grew up. And over time, I, I think I've come to like a lot of flavor and texture mm, to the foods yeah. I eat. So, I mean, you can imagine with Tex-Mex. Yeah. And and I also like a little bit of kick, which is okay. much, much the chagrin of my husband because he oh, like okay. breaks out a sweat with tangy ketchup. So... <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. There, yeah, there was not much that my mom made me eat growing up, but there were definitely things that I disliked growing up that I like now. Like, I love mushrooms. I like spinach. Mm, yeah. Five-year-old me would be like, oh, I will never like this. But yes. your taste buds do change over time. I don't know. They do. So what about you, Bishop Todd? 
I grew up in a house different than what Vanessa is saying. We are, my mom, she, my mom wasn't like a chef or anything, but she cooked and we were definitely told we had to eat stuff we didn't like. Mm-hmm. Too bad. Yeah. You better like, eat it or you can't get up from the table. Right. right yeah. Right. And there's starving kids in China and we would smart oh, like little kids. We'd say, well, then send it to China. I'm not eating that liver, <laughs> yeah. you know, or whatever. Yeah. Yes. So I, um, I remember liver. And I just Ooh. remember a lot of vegetables <sighs> I didn't like. But so that's probably the main way my taste buds have changed is I'm no more lot, liver. I'll, no, no, still no liver, but I'm, that's uh, fair. I'm a lot more willing to eat vegetables than I would have been as a kid. That's yeah. for sure. Okay. For that's sure. the goal. All that moms want is for you to eat yes. your fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Right. Yep. And eventually you start to like them on your own. That's right. So Vanessa, it's fun to have you on the other side of the mic, so to speak. You're you're usually my co-host in the podcast for the Center for Formation, Justice, and Peace. But today, mm-hmm. you're here with us because of your expertise in trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vanessa is trained through the Allender Center in narrative-focused trauma care. She's a certified spiritual director with an emphasis on Ignatian spirituality. And she's a certified Enneagram teacher. I don't know how you hold that all in the same head and heart. What is it with you? You got a bigger head than the rest of us. I know, so many accomplishments. There's no way to like whittle that down into the three-minute elevator speech that you're supposed to get people. (laughs) What do you do? Uh, How much time do you have? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tell us first, just to help our audience get into your head and heart a little bit, what drew you to being interested in uh, trauma care? Yeah, I, I think... The majority of really great therapists or really great spiritual directors I know, or even, you know, people like you and I, Todd, and the work that we do at the center, so much of what we come to find ourselves drawn to is birthed out of our own stories and our own trauma and our own experience. And that is no less true for me. I didn't start out wanting to be trained in in trauma. I think I was going after my own healing journey. And Mm. as my own story was unfolding and I was finding out more and more information about my own childhood and about my own experiences, how it was impacting my present day relationships, I I, I started to wonder and to become curious and to look deeper Mm -hmm. into those aspects. And as I did, uh, found myself in these training programs both spiritual direction and narrative-focused trauma care. And now looking back, you know, one of the things that we talk about at the Allender Center is, is this nature of calling not being such a vocational aspect or a profession aspect, what you do or your job, but really how have you learned to be in the world? What what are the aspects that make you unique in your own place and locatedness and time and what are the ways that you've sort of mitigated harm that has come to you Mm -hmm. throughout your life. All of those things converged when I look back at even my time in college. I could see, well, people just show up at my door. They may or may not be crying and they need someone to talk to. And so I could trace it even all the way back there. So Vanessa, we have a lot of training on the C4SO website. People like uh, Chuck DeGroat and Diane Langberg and others have helped Mm -hmm. us helped our clergy and our church leaders try to understand trauma and spiritual abuse and you know misuse of power and that sort of thing. But I remember one of the the phrases I've learned from you over the last year, year and a half as we've got to know know each other is a, a phrase called story work mm-hmm. or looking at trauma in uh, through the lens of narrative. Mm-hmm. So help us understand why it is that story 
is so important in both caring for others and understanding our own trauma? I think our our stories are important for a number of reasons. One being that our formative years, those you know, from childhood specifically, they inform our everyday relationships, our everyday interactions, whether we're aware of it or not. I think our stories, they shape who we are sort of like an operating system of a computer. It's just always running in this low hum in the background. So, I mean, an example, we were just talking about food and the food that we ate growing up and talk about what our moms made us eat. And I kind of gave like a pretty basic generic answer. I didn't say and what you don't know is that I prepared a lot of my own meals as a uh, kid because my mom raised me as a single parent and I was a latchkey kid who was home alone a lot. Mm. So that meant that my meals were mostly like kid cuisine and ramen noodles yeah. that yeah. I made myself. And so like our stories sort of pop up in our everyday lives. I think secondly, knowing the nuance and complexity of one another's stories actually deepens our relationships with one another. Because we're bumping up against each other all the time, if we have more details or context for a person's response or behavior, we begin to open this door toward greater understanding and a little bit more nuance. There's room for depth and curiosity. And so I think also lastly, our stories are important because they fit into both this larger cultural and historical narrative and the larger story of God that's unfolding in all of creation. We are this interconnected people whose stories are both personally playing out and they also can't be separated from those collective narratives that are unfolding all around us. A great example of that is being played out right now on a a national scale, I think, as America starts to reckon with its own origin stories and how we've cycled through some of those stories as they've played out over time that have really given rise to much of what we're seeing socially and politically today. Vanessa, on the one hand, we have the really serious work that people like Dan Allender and Chuck DeGroat and Diane Langberg and others have been doing on trauma And then on the other hand, it seems like trauma can just be a trendy buzzword. Like, you know, uh, typically uh, for me, anyway, it'd be a young person who maybe their favorite show was preempted by the Super Bowl. And they're like, oh, my God, I'm so traumatized. Um, (laughs) So help us understand that trauma is not uh, just merely a buzzword. But what what brought it into such a popular view? Like what was happening before trauma was a, a word in the social vocabulary? What do you think maybe was the tipping point that brought it into view and shifted people's mentality? Yeah, it's such a great question because trauma is such a buzzword right now. And in, so much so that, in, like you said, it's become watered down, which I think truly does a disservice yeah. to those who've you know suffered traumatic events or have ongoing chronic trauma. But you know, I think it was in... Um, 1980, that the American Psychiatric Association added PTSD or post-traumatic mm-hmm. stress disorder to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or yeah. what's called the DSM. And mm-hmm. for those who don't know, that's just it's the largest reference text for psychologists and psychi- and psychiatrists. And so, it was greatly debated at the time when it mm-hmm. was added because it shifted the historical perspective of trauma from an inside-out understanding to an outside-in. Mm-hmm. So PTSD went from originating within an individual and manifesting outwardly in particular behaviors to, no, actually PTSD is about 
these external factors, be it traumatic or abusive really, like events or an environment that happens to an individual. And I actually, you know, when I look back, Todd, I think it's a bit prophetic in its timing because fast forward and we've got the elections of 2008, 2016 roll around and all of these movements that start to to rise up around us and and we start to really see this culmination in the pandemic. So about 10 years ago, we see this increase of people looking for therapists, turning to members of clergy for how to navigate really what's being awakened in their own individual stories and memories, but also in light of what that means and what's playing out in the world around them. Yeah. So Vanessa, in light of kind of that information, can you kind of explain to our listeners what trauma-informed care is and what that looks like. Because in a world where over the recent years we've become more sensitive to trauma and, and kind of emphasizing the effects that it's had on people, how do we as Christians engage with trauma and what does trauma-informed care look like for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So trauma-informed is a broad umbrella with, I think, many subcategories. But on a foundational level, being trauma-informed is about shifting that mindset of pathologizing or diagnosing people to that more storied, holistic narrative approach. So going from asking what's wrong with you to what happened to you. And so I think the farther we step into this holistic approach, we also can start to see like not just what happened to you, but what happened to you and your people and what's still happening right now. So I'm a firm believer that our our styles of relating, even the ways we approach certain tasks, they, they don't exist in a vacuum, uh, that they're formed generationally, going back three and four generations we've seen even scientifically, and we're impacted environmentally. So if you can kind of when we, when we think about this idea of trauma-informed, if you could think of three concentric circles, you've got innermost circle is your individual story, that those that are like most unique to you, right? And then the second circle is your family of origin or your faith community. Um, sometimes your extended family, depending on what culture you're in. We just know that non-Western cultures tend to have like a more collective understanding of family. And then that third circle is that cultural and historical narrative that's taking place and how your specific ethnicity is fitting into that larger historical picture. And so if we're talking about care for these individuals, I want to know like what's happened to you. What are the stories that have formed your language, your posture, your position, the way you stand in a group, how you eat food, prepare food. Um, And so shifting that, that mindset to what's happened to you. And so without diminishing what has happened to people and spiritually bypassing their experience, I think a lot of the people that I see and the stories that I hear are people who have never had their pain or suffering validated, mm. including from a church, um, either from its members or from leadership. And I, I've come to believe that Jesus experienced every type of trauma, and I, and I do mean every type of trauma. And I think it's it's in that solidarity with Jesus, with all of humanity, that we can find this place of solace and consolation that this incarnational presence of this other person, this other people, 
these Jesuses with skin on who are able to read like the micro shifts in our faces, our body language, and really become curious about how I've come to move and have my being in the world allows the spirit to move in and around us. And, you know, Todd, I think you've heard me say that the most powerfully incarnational thing we can do is to simply be with someone in the midst of their suffering as it unfolds without trying to resolve it or move past it, uh, but to clearly see it and and to grieve it with one another. I would love to hear more too about how Christ-centered spirituality, how is that the core hope uh, for healing of trauma, right? Because Christ He's the healer of all. So how do we really mm. lean into this kind of incarnational like identification that Jesus is our hope? And so how do we live this out as believers when we're dealing with people who have pain and have this trauma in their background? Why does it matter that as Christians, we believe that Christ is the center of all things and he is the center of hope? So how do we really mm. lean into this? Yeah. Uh, there's a verse in Second Corinthians 1 that I really love. It, it says, Blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all comfort and compassion, who comforts us in our affliction so that we can comfort those with the comfort we ourselves have received. And that's a lot of repetition mm. of the word yeah. comfort in just a couple of verses. And that word Comfort in the Greek, it means to come alongside. And so I I have to believe that Paul isn't like speaking really loftily here about this God who's far off and like everything's going to be okay. Don't worry, be happy. I really believe that Paul is speaking to the embodied witness of another. And Christians in particular have an opportunity to be the forerunners of what it means to be a community of healing. I think part of that is patience and compassion that go really far-reaching, more far-reaching than I think we give them credit for. But I think another practical aspect of that is normalizing people's experience, even if you aren't sure how to help them along the way. Um, Just really normalizing a person's experience um, when it comes to what they're going through. Um, Sometimes I like to think about Jesus-centered spirituality or spiritual formation through an attachment lens. And without going too far in depth and boring people, attachment theory is really about those just those particular bonds, those long-term bonds that ind- individuals have with their early caregivers. And so the different types of attachments kind of fall along a spectrum. By and large, there's only one attachment style that's considered to be a secure one. And that's when a child grows up into an adult who can trust fairly easily, has a good pulse <laughs> on their like internal world, and can communicate their emotions clearly. Um, that's not 100% of people I know. <laughs> that, that um, by and large, most people that I know didn't stumble into becoming healthy, functioning adults. They did a lot of work um, engaging their own stories of harm. And that includes their spiritual attachment theory and attachment style. So how does the belovedness of God, um, as they are in their shame and their messiness, actually provide room and space 
to fall apart with Jesus and to fall apart in the presence of another person. Again, and I think sometimes that we do need that that smell, that touch, that form of a real person to be able to have an imagination for what that belovedness from Jesus can feel like. So Vanessa, part of our motivation in having you on the C4SO podcast is that we want all of our clergy and lay leaders to at least have some basic ideas about trauma. So I want to just go a little deeper to see if there's anything else you would say in terms of our clergy understanding, you know, practices of trauma care. So you've talked about being present, talked Mm. about listening, you've talked about normalizing. But what if I asked it this way, just picture a clergy person and they're sitting with somebody who may or may not be traumatized. They don't know. They're just Mm. starting to hear this story. What's the one thing that comes to your mind or maybe two that they absolutely should not do? And what are the one or two things that someone should do when you're beginning to hear a story that may involve trauma? Mm -hmm. The first thing kind of goes back to what I've already said is like to not pathologize Mm -hmm. an individual. So say Um, what that means. What does pathologize mean? Yeah. So to pathologize someone is, is, is to sort of start to to place them in a box or a category mm. of like, well, let me rewind a little bit because what what it what often is playing out is that um, a pastor or a clergy member um, may or may not uh, be having their own story come up as mm. they're talking or hearing from someone. So, if a pastor, let's say, had a parent who it was their job to care for their emotional needs. I think many pastors find themselves in the pastoral profession or ministry profession because they've learned how how to care for people in their lives. And so I think the first thing you want to do is be aware of how your own story is popping up and to not overlay what you've experienced onto or project onto another person, um, what's happening for them. So at a basic level, you're listening and you're taking your lead uh, from the person who is expressing their experience in front of you. I think back to probably the best thing that a pastor did for my husband and I when we were going through the very worst of some of our relationship was to listen really intently on where we were coming from, but then to immediately say and recognize, like from a clinical perspective, I'm out of my wheelhouse, but from a pastoral perspective, how has what you're experiencing impacted your relationship with God, with Jesus? And how can this faith community surround you uh, in really practical ways? I think that was probably one of the wisest and most humble things that that particular pastor could have said at that time. There was no abandonment of of care. um, And there was a recognition like, this is how far my reach and my care can go. I can't enter that clinical realm with you. Yeah. But that I trust that there are people who can. And another practical thing I would say is for pastors to have a working referral list and network, yeah. whether that's inside their own body or just inside the community at large, that they yeah. can refer people out to. Hello, Eric Vincent here. C4SO's Director of Administration, inviting all C4SO clergy, staff, spouses, and children to this year's clergy conference at Christ Church Overland Park, May 3rd through 5th. There will be food, fellowship, and fun. 
what's not to love? In our sessions, we'll be exploring the theme, Confident Ministry, Faithfully Navigating Our Times, targeting three specific areas of our current cultural landscape, marginalization of the church, gender identity and transgender experiences, and political disunity. Our keynote speaker, Bishop Todd Hunter, alongside psychologist Mark Yarhouse, will specifically address pastoral implications and practical takeaways. Register now at c4so.org to take advantage of early bird pricing. If you register after February 28th, the price increases to $329 per adult. So don't wait. Register today, and we hope to see you in May. So by pathologizing, yeah. Vanessa, I, if I'm understanding you right, a practice that I see, and of course this happens in all kinds of human relations, not just with uh, pastors giving care, but it's so it, it can be easy to say, oh, well, she's just, and maybe, well, she just had a baby, so, you know, mm-hmm. she, who knows what's going on with her, or, well, he's right. just got daddy issues. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of a popularized version of pathologizing people, right? And yeah. then that keeps us from being truly present, truly mm-hmm. listening, truly normalizing their experience. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Are those sort of pop ways of pathologizing? Yeah, I think those are pop ways of pathologizing. I think yeah. even more as we've come to have more uh, information available to us about trauma, um, it's easy to slap a diagnosis on someone and say, uh, yeah, you know, they're a perfectionist or a control freak or, or they're kind of acting a little bit borderline. Um, and that's super problematic, like baseline hurtful, but it shuts down curiosity again yeah. like it shuts down that question of like mm. there's a there's a reason that you're behaving the way that you are there's a reason yeah. that you're communicating your behaviors yeah. the way that you are and can we get to point, that Vanessa sorry that when you say well she's just or he's just that that automatically shuts down the curiosity needed to be with somebody and care for them. That is a super it's very great dismissive, point. right? So, Vanessa, just to follow up on on that a bit more, part of the things you're seeing in popular conversation of all kinds, and certainly amongst clergy, is that it's starting to feel like, well, everything's spiritual abuse. So, mm-hmm. if somebody makes an unguarded comment, you know, I was abused or that traumatized me. So against that background where, you know, some, you know, people would say, well, if everything's spiritual abuse, then nothing is. If everything's traumatic, well, then nothing is. And again, we're sort of back to the pop use of these terms where they begin to lose their meaning. Mm. What would you say to a clergy person who is trying to ascertain, is is this really trauma so that they could Mm. either care for it themselves or refer it out? Are there a couple of mental checklists that people can use to try to ascertain if something really is trauma. Yes. Yes, there are. I think number one on the surface, we're looking for behavioral changes. So mm. person becoming overly agitated or irritable, someone who's isolating themselves or withdrawing from regular activities, those kind of symptoms of depression that you would look mm. for. Substance abuse or even overuse. I don't think it has to be um, even come to the place of abuse, like someone says, I, I, you know, I can't, at the end of every day, I have to have a glass of wine. My ears are already kind of peaked of like, Mm -hmm. can we talk a little bit about how you might need what it is you might be numbing when you do that? Um, but I think 
typically uh, when you're in the realm of a person who struggles to become regulated or remain regulated. And, and what I mean by that is that trauma affects our nervous system. Like we know this. So when I say regulated, what I'm talking about is something called the window of tolerance developed by a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist. And it refers to this state in which we're able to be grounded, flexible, and access our reason. And so when stress occurs, generally a person who's within their window of tolerance will be able to access the tools needed to regulate themselves. They can breathe. They can ask for what they need. They can communicate those things effectively. Someone who's outside that window of tolerance, a um, person may find themselves in what we call hyperarousal or hypoarousal. So hyperarousal is that person who's generally overwhelmed, who's super agitated, maybe anxious, where hypoarousal is typically a person who's shut down or numbing mm. or starting to withdraw, um, may have like vacant expressions on their faces. So I, I would say when a person struggles to get to a place of regulation or rest, and there's a pattern of coming outside of that window of tolerance and not being able to come back to a grounded place, that's a pretty good indication that someone's experienced or in the midst of trauma. That's really helpful. I, I want to kind of go back real quick to what you said about how we as you know people in clergy or those who are in like pastoral ministry, when we have people who come to us with this experience and knowing when to say, this is outside of my scope of expertise or my ministry. I think there's real wisdom in that because I think sometimes if we don't know when to refer out, we end up mm. doing more damage than good. I think we need to mm. know where we pastorally, how do we come alongside you? But clinically, here's where we can point you in the right direction. So I think there's real wisdom in that. And that leads me to my next question is, how do churches become sources of healing for people? Because people who are in pastoral ministry or disciple or in close contact and walking through life with people who have trauma in their background, we want to be sources of healing for them. We want the church mm. to be a source of healing. So how do we do that? Yeah, I, I think now is the time for church leaders to really take stock of their practices and protocols that they have in place and the ways that they're engaging people within their communities. I think you're right, Mickey. It's an opportunity for churches to be places of healing, um, and there needs to be a willingness to initiate, uh, I think, with church members. But, um, I'll talk on a broad scale. Churches have to be willing to ask the question, like, where have we failed you? What, what are our blind spots that we might not be aware of in the ways that we're providing care in this community? Are there even individual situations with with leaders or, or, or people in authority that, that we've not been made aware of? And then to truly listen, collect the data and implement changes that are needed. And I think that's a tall order, but I think it's a great place um, to start in order to be able to create a space of safety where someone feels like they could bring something to the forefront and communicate it to a church leader. I think a great place to start is really to create a, a space, maybe even on a weeknight, where folks can share <laughs> about mm. their spiritual experiences. You know, Todd, this may resonate with you from just being a, a pastor, but one person can't possibly get to hear all the stories of each right. person <laughs> or each family that comes through the door. I, I think if there is even uh, an evening where 
you know, there's four or five questions posed that folks can talk about amongst themselves. You know, what brought you to this church? What's your historic involvement been in faith communities? Where are the places that people need the church to come alongside them in order for there to be connection and belonging? Or is this something that you need for just like a, a place of burnout? Yeah. Because you've been in years of service. I think that's a great place to start. But the really good question, Mickey, is how do you know when to refer out? I think, again, this is where wisdom and discernment and humility really come into play. Anytime someone's in that realm of addiction, particularly you know substance, alcohol, or sexual addiction, um, that's one that we see really rampant, I think, in the church is like men um, or or women. Um, or their spouses who approach clergy members and say like, hey, my spouse or myself is really struggling with pornography, let's say. When it interferes with your uh, daily tasks and ability to function, that's when you're in the realm of addiction. And I think one of the things that pastors can do is uh, in growing their own awareness and training is talking to therapists in, again, in, in their midst or outside in the community so that there's that network of referrals. But anytime you're in the realm of that, of addiction is a great place to refer out. Uh, And anytime someone has shared even a past experience of physical, psychological, or sexual abuse, particularly if this is, they they say something like, this is, I've never told anybody this before. This is the first time I've told somebody this. Mm -hmm. That's when you're kind of, you know that they haven't had or received any kind of care around that in the past. And it might be time to refer out. Totally. Vanessa, what's the difference? Let's say you hear a report of a child uh, dealing with trauma versus you hear a report of an adult um, struggling with trauma. So you haven't had a conversation yet because I I think I know enough to know where you might go on this. (laughs) But what's the first thing, again, that a pastor should do when they have reason to believe that a child has been traumatized um, versus an adult? I have a feeling there's different ways of approaching those things. What are the two or three key things that pastors should be aware of? Sure. I think certainly depend in both situations on the nature of the trauma. Again, there's different types of trauma. But with either party, I think there needs to be a determination made about whether the trauma or abuse isolated event or whether Mm. it's an ongoing or an acute sort of active situation. But in the case of of hearing about a child experiencing trauma, I think there's definitely evidence gathering if it has happened, especially within like on church grounds or within the church itself. But it's the law to report any sort of abuse that's happening with a child. If the abuse is coming from inside the home, local authorities, child protective services, these these are folks who need to be called in. So in the case of a child, it's the law to report it. If the trauma occurred outside of the home, like for the child themselves, but outside of the home, let's say you are privy to something that's happened, you know, at school or something, then at the minimum, there needs to be a conversation with the parents. Very likely, there's a police report that needs to be filed. Uh, It's a difficult thing to say. And often it's very difficult to hear that a person who has a lived experience abuse, there's almost always someone who knows. Mm. There's almost always someone who knows abuse is occurring and yet mm. who says nothing. So whether that's the other parent, a sibling, a friend, a teacher, a neighbor, there's almost always someone who knows. Oh. 
So again, I know I've referred to having a network and, and people to refer, but making sure that there's even pediatric care, pediatric therapists on that list too. Yeah. But in the case of an adult, I mean, again, if the trauma is acute and they're in an abusive situation, the first call, the first call needs to be to someone who they trust to sit within your office while plans and police are being called and authorities are being called um, because they need to be able to be assured that they have a, a safe place to stay and a plan in place if there's an event uh, for the potential of someone else to inflict harm or try to find them. Yeah. But if they're removed from that inciting incident or ongoing trauma, I think listening and beginning to determine if they're a danger to themselves or to others. And if not, then you can kind of pull out that list of referrals to be able to process uh, yeah, long term. And, and in the C4SO training, um, there are paragraphs and elements in various places where we in more time than Vanessa has here, enumerate that it is very difficult actually to interview a child and that most of us shouldn't try, that yeah. we can we can inadvertently re-traumatize. Mm, we, could, yeah. we could ask questions that could uh, actually mitigate against a case against the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. So interviewing children is um, really, really difficult. And I would just urge you to listen to the rest of the rest of the other training that we do. Right, yes. Vanessa, that you, yes. we, can, we can inadvertently really go wrong interviewing yes. a child badly, right? Yes, inadvertently really go wrong. I like yeah. that phrase. It, it is, again, it's that wisdom and discernment to say, I'm outside of my wheelhouse here. And there mm -hmm. are people who are trained to be able to talk with a child in a way that's not going to disrupt any kind of, you know, civil or, or, or legal case that might be coming down the pike later on. Yeah. All right, Vanessa, last thing, um, we're out of time here, but as Mickey and I were preparing for this podcast, we're curious, you know, especially me, because I, I know you and we, we live in town together and I, mm -hmm. I see you occasionally. I'm just picturing you going through your process, your studies at the Allender Center and all that you've been reading and learning. And I can imagine because you're a lady of the church that you frequently have pictured the church as you've learned what you've been learning. So regarding trauma and everything that we've been talking about today and regarding the church, what would you say most troubles you or concerns you? What's our biggest challenge? I think what concerns me um, is this sense of compartmentalization mm. and relegation of trauma care to the realm of professional therapists or even just therapists and pastors to say, you know, emotional and mental health care goes over here in this box and the church only exists for spiritual needs over here in this box for its members. Mm. When in actuality, we are holistic beings yeah. um, with connected systems and to, to, to piece and parcel out our care, to use an example from scripture, is, is like strengthening the arm and not the leg yeah. or the ear and not the nose um, mm -hmm. and leaving other parts unattended. So we need doctors, educators, hairstylists, yes, pastors, and I dare say police and law enforcement who have just a basic core understanding of the nature of trauma because these people are engaged with relational aspects to their day, day in and day out. And if the church is the cornerstone of the community, as it should be, um, churches not only need to be the place where those who've experienced trauma can find places of healing, but also a place that equips members and the community itself to really be, I think, agents of care in their own locatedness. 
Mm. On the other hand, as you've mm-hmm. gone through your program and learned everything you're learning and haven't been in the church, you know, as far as I know, your whole life, most of your life, what's the greatest potential you see in the church to be a force for good with reference to trauma? You know, I see the wealth of information we have available today, and we are in a unique time in history where information is at our fingertips, and it means that we can become better educated. Uh, And I see that happening. I see people being educated on various kinds of trauma, be it spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, racial trauma, and its effects on people's lives. And I do think for better or for worse, the stories of harm that are coming out from various churches and church leaders actually does give me hope. James Baldwin, in a completely different context, said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed unless it is faced. And yeah. he made he made that statement in, in the context of racial injustice and inequities, but I, I do think it's a universal truth. Mm-hmm. And the reckoning that's taking place within the church and Christianity uh, really as a whole, I think provides a really rich soil to be able to grow and cultivate something different going forward. All right, Vanessa, thank <laughs> you so much. It's so great to have you. Thank you, Vanessa. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you guys. Thanks so much for tuning in to the C4SO podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to share this episode and subscribe and leave a review. It helps us to get the word out. Thanks.